Welcome back to part two of Fertility and Sterility On Air Special Edition, coming to you live from the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo in Baltimore, Maryland. Part one talked about some of the behind the scenes of the people and the mission of ASRM. Part two, we're going to get into some of the science. One of the best parts about ASRM is coming and seeing what other fellows, other attendings, other people from around the world are all working on in the field of reproductive medicine. So I hope that this blows you away just like it did a lot of us and enjoy. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, editorial editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, interactive associate and producer. All right, Fertility and Sterility listeners, I'm back here broadcasting live from the ASRM 2021 Fertility and Sterility booth, and it is my distinct pleasure to be joined by my attending surgical mentor and author of the Malarian Anomaly Classification 2021 system, Dr. Samantha Pfeiffer. Dr. Pfeiffer, welcome to the podcast. Pietro, thank you for having me. It's quite exciting to be here. We're excited to be in person, live from the meeting, and we're entering our last day of the meeting, and we have something very special happening this afternoon. Oh, yes, we do. Tell our listeners what is happening this afternoon that's new and exciting in ASRM. Well, this afternoon we are going to present the Malarian Anomaly Classification for ASRM 2021, and it's an update to the prior classification, which was published in 1988. So it's new, innovative classification of malarian anomalies. The tw- 1998 version was 88. A, 88. Excuse me, was a static PDF that you had to go dig up in the journal. I've yes. had a sneak preview at the Mac 2021. This is totally different. What can people expect from how the information is going to be presented in the new classification system? Well, I think our concept was to uh, make a classification that is user-friendly, that can be modified, and also has a large educational component. One of the problems with malarian anomalies is that although we've got multiple classifications, people still are not aware of the range of anomalies or what to deal, how to deal with them. And so we thought, you know, we wanted to make it accessible. We wanted it to be, um, we could update it and change it as new information became available. And we thought an interactive format would be a perfect way to meet those goals. Make it a living, breathing classification system. Living, breathing classification system, yeah. One of the best parts of the classification system are the fact that there's multimedia in the Mm -hmm. classification system. There are, for people who are unfamiliar with the diagnostic evaluation for them, there's beautiful radiologic images, yep. MRI, ultrasound, 3D images, and then also some surgical correlation that shows people what this actually looks like when you're looking from above with a laparoscope or below from a hysteroscope. How hard was it to get all of this organized? Because I can't imagine this all came from a single source. This must have been a big contribution from authors all over the world. We did Well, it wasn't authors all over the world. We had a, an amazing task force. And in putting this together, we wanted to represent all individuals or specialties that are really involved in 
diagnosis and treatment of anomalies. So our task force had representatives from the Society of Reproductive Surgeons, some of whom are members of the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. So we had Steve Lindheim, Marjan Adaran, Beth Rakow, John Petroza, who are standard um, SRS members. We had the representative from NASPAG, Andrea Zuckerman. And then we also have radiologists on the committee. So we had three radiologists, Evan Siegelman from Penn, who is uh, very knowledgeable, uh, Rob Traiano from Cornell, and then we added Tom Winters from uh, Utah. And then we have Jessica Goldstein, who is our uh, herds us around. <laughs> well, she's, she herds us and organizes everything, but her genius is in her educational enthusiasm, and she had great ideas about how to enlarge the educational format. And then pulling this all together is Sarah Ramaya, who is at ASRM, who is a genius in coming up with the computer programming to create the interactive format. So it was really a lot of people coming together. And what was interesting is that everyone had something key that they contributed. And it was really a committee project and everyone contributed. So it evolved. And in the beginning, we really didn't know what we were going to do. Our charge was to update the classification. And I said, well, what do you want us to do? Free reign. And so we basically looked at the prior classifications, looked at their advantages and disadvantages, and then came up with goals we thought would be important to incorporate into the new classification. As someone who's familiar with the 1988 classification system, this looks familiar to people. Mm-hmm. A lot of the way the information is presented and laid out doesn't look like you're totally reinventing the wheel, but certainly providing more examples, subclassifications that certainly aid in the clinical management of malarian anomalies. What about from a research perspective? How do you think the new guide, the new classification system allows people to speak the same language when they're talking about malarian anomalies? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we wanted to maintain the simplicity of the prior classification. Um, and so we did continue the pictures. What we eliminated was numeric references, and we really focused on trying to establish or create consistent nomenclature that would identify these anomalies. And that would serve two purposes. Number one, it would increase the ability to discuss these anomalies with a colleague. Um, So for example, um, if you have um, what people refer to as an OVIRA or U2C3V2, um, we refer to that in in promoting that we use the terminology of uterus didelphus with an obstructed right or left hemivagina and ipsilateral renal agenesis. Um, And by using that terminology, we're enhancing communication regarding the anomaly to better foster treatment. But at the same time, by using a standardized terminology that everyone can understand, we're also promoting it as a searchable term in PubMed or any other search engine. And by doing so and, and establishing that terminology, we're hoping to have people access the the, um, literature better. And for example, OVIRA is what a lot of gynecologists refer to that anomaly as. In the pediatric or urologic literature, it's referred to as Herner-Werler-Wunderlich syndrome. And the two don't know that the other exists. It's really kind of stunning. They're two very different PubMed searches. 
two very different PubMed searches. And if you look for, you know, double uterus obstructive vagina, you may not get all of that literature. So by trying to be consistent or establish standard terminology that's easy to understand, we're hoping to promote research. Um, the other thing we're hoping to do with the, for example, the septate uterus, we have a very clear definition, and that's one of the things in the 1988 classification that didn't exist. So we have very clear defini definition of septate uterus, um, and we've defined it as greater than one centimeter indentation or length of the septum as measured from the intercorneal line. We've also established that can be measured by any means. So unlike the Escher classification, where you're really using a 3D ultrasound, we can use any means of measuring it, hysteroscopy, 2D ultrasound, if you're so inclined, 3D ultrasound, MRI. But by establishing that strict definition, we hope that can be used moving forward to evaluate the relevance of a septum. Because for so many women with malarian anomalies, the time from symptoms and presentation to receiving a formal diagnosis can be so long. Mm -hmm. And giving people with a little less experience with malarian anomalies very tangible definitions that they can use and access and become comfortable with will hopefully eliminate a little bit of that gap that patients experience. Do you expect the classification system to be a tool that patients will also access to learn a little bit more about their condition? Yeah, we actually, we, we do. And I think, you know, we want to promote patient advocacy and awareness. Um, many anomalies are brought to the attention of providers because the parents of these adolescents are saying, hey, I researched online. I think this is what my daughter has. So by educating patients, I think we're giving them, um, we're supporting them, and that's advocacy and promoting awareness, and it's all geared towards improving care. I mean, as you alluded to, a lot of these patients come in and are seen on numerous occasions over several weeks to months, and no one considers the malarian anomaly as part of the differential diagnosis. So our goal is by having an interactive format that's accessible to anybody that it will be viewed by radiologists, by pediatric surgeons, by emergency room physicians, by adolescent medicine people, and we can educate people about the existence of this and thereby improve patient care. And beyond just late diagnosis, misdiagnosis, which mm -hmm. could have catastrophic consequences when surgical interventions planned or attempted, I think the classification system is going to go a long way for preoperative planning so people know what they're getting themselves into because they can communicate in a very obvious way about mm -hmm. what it is they plan on doing to what anomaly with the new classification system? And the other thing we have in there is a category called similar to. So if you think you have a patient with a specific diagnosis, you can look at a category called similar to, and that's going to show you anomalies that may present in a similar fashion, may have a similar you know, clinical course, or may appear in a similar fashion on imaging. So again, you look and say, I think this is what I have. I think it's malarinogenesis. But let's make sure. Let's, let's, what are the other things I need to consider? Let me exclude these things as potential diagnoses and look at the imaging and the symptoms and such. And by doing so, help to better refine the diagnosis or give providers a tool to look at these categories to better know what they're dealing with. Well, 
I know I speak on behalf of all reproductive surgeons and f people interested in surgery, but certainly for the rest of the people attending the meeting, we're very much looking forward to the presentation this afternoon. For people who won't be able to join the meeting in person, there'll be video recording of that session that we're hoping to link directly to the publication of the eventual classification system in fertility and sterility, as well as on the website, because it is a big interactive component that we want to help orient people to and help them understand the various ways that it can be useful. It, it'll be great. I think the publication is going to come out in Fertility and Sterility in November. There's two ways you can link to the tool. In the publication, there's a static version of the um, representation, but on the static version is a barcode that you can use to access the tool directly from that PDF. In addition, you can go to the ASRM website and access it through the Education tab. It's MAC 2021. And we're also going to be putting it onto the patient access port, too. So you don't have to be a member of ASRM to access the tool. Thank and we also hope to have it as an app in the future. So much to look forward to. Thank, Thank you, Dr. Pfeiffer, for stopping by the Fertility and Sterility booth. We look forward to hearing your presentation this afternoon. Thank you, Pietro. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. All right, welcome back, podcast listeners. I'm Pietro Bordelotto, Interactive Associate and Chief for Fertility and Sterility. And I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Nicole Doyle from Shady Grove Fertility about, I think, one of the hot topic oral presentations at this year's meeting. Dr. Doyle presented yesterday a randomized control trial comparing live birth from single euploid frozen blastocyst transfer using standardized timing versus timing by the endometrial receptivity analysis. Dr. Doyle, welcome. And Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Pietro, for having me. We have been buzzing about this presentation the entire meeting, and our listeners are going to be listening to this after the fact. But for the ones who are not able to join us in the meeting, we would love to hear from you about the project. Why don't you start by telling us how the idea came about? Why was this worth studying? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So actually, you know, I was very fortunate during my fellowship. This was my fellowship thesis. And so when I was a first year fellow, I was approached with the question, do you want to do this as you conduct this clinical trial as your fellowship thesis? And I was thrilled about the idea, very excited, because I, was, I thought it was really an intriguing research question. And as you said, something that our field really needed to answer. So I thought, you know, it would really contribute to our field. And um, at the time when I was a first-year fellow, the ERA was widely used, you know, for both patients with a recurrent implantation failure, but also, you know, for the general IVF good prognosis patient population. But at that time, and really still today, the overwhelmingly retrospective literature and the data on the topic was really controversial. And so the question as to the utility and the benefit of the ERA test was really still unclear. And so that's really how I started the trial. And really, it has been such an exciting time um, to get this opportunity as a fellow. It was definitely, you know, a live and learn kind of experience. And, you, you know, you get to appreciate the nuances and the details that it requires to conduct a clinical trial and, you know, to get and collect um, level one evidence-based data and medicine. So it's such a heavy lift, but that's why we place so much weight on it when coming up with society recommendations and guidelines is because it really does answer the question elegantly. Could you yeah. tell the listeners a little bit about how the study was designed, the methods of what, what the what you guys intended to do to be able to show the results that you did. Absolutely. So this was a single center, as a blind, randomized, balanced one-to-one -one clinical trial. 
that set out to test a hypothesis that frozen blastocyst transfer, according to the ERA results, improves live birth rates compared to a standardized transfer. So in other words, is an ERA-timed transfer superior to a standard transfer that we usually do? And so we thought that was important because it really is still poorly understood. When does that window of implantation really open up in the menstrual cycle? So what is the ideal time for us to transfer the embryo? And uh, so it sought out it, you know, to answer that question. So we enrolled close to 1,000 patients in the trial, ended up randomizing 767 patients. All patients underwent an IVF cycle with PGTA testing to control for an embryo factor there. Patients who did have at least one euploid embryo available for transfer were eligible then to proceed with an ERA cycle. So all patients also had this ERA cycle. And then for patients who had both a euploid embryo, but also an informative ERA result, those were then randomized in one of two groups. Patients in the study group went ahead and had an ERA-timed euploid transfer. Patients in the control group had a standard um, euploid transfer. In our practice, we do a standard transfer after 123 plus minus three hours of progesterone exposure. And then we looked at live birth as the primary outcome. And what we found was that there was no statistically significant difference in, the, in both groups in terms of live birth. So in other words, whether patients underwent an ERA-timed transfer or a standard transfer did not impact live birth rates. One of the questions I had from your presentation, how often did you encounter a non-receptive endometrium and how did you define non-receptive in the study? Yeah, good question. So the way we defined non-receptive was that whenever the ERA test um, suggested a change in progesterone exposure from that standard 123 plus minus three hours that we used, we defined that as non-receptive. And that included the early and the late um, receptives. So if you look at this um, in both groups, the majority of our results were non-receptive, about 50, a little over 50% in both groups. And of the non-receptives, the vast majority of patients had a pre-receptive result, about 30% in both groups. And how does that compare to other work that's been done using the ERA? Is this what most other people are seeing, or was this a unique and unexpected finding in your population? So it varied widely. If you look at the literature, the non-receptive results vary somewhat. Um, recent older data suggested a smaller fraction of non-receptive results about 30%. And then more recent data, um, a large, with you know, large numbers suggest a similar, fairly high number of non-receptive data. And for the practices that routinely utilize the ERA upfront, this is certainly very helpful and informative data. What about the practices that use the ERA after two or three failed euploid transfers. Do you think this data can be extrapolated to that population? Or do you think this is really upfront use of the ERA for women with a good prognosis and without that recurrent implantation failure history? Do you feel comfortable extrapolating to that group or not yet? No, I don't. So it's a really good point. This data was for a good prognosis IVF population. So the conclusion that we can draw from this data is that for good prognosis IVF um, uh, patients, the ERA is not superior to a standard transfer. However, we cannot extrapolate that to patients rec with recurrent implantation failure or poor prognosis patients. So that trial has to be done with the next fellow. Um, uh, it's going to be difficult to do that because it's such a small fraction of our total IVF population. 
that you know, it would take probably multi-center and a long time to enroll a sufficient number of patients in order to be adequately powered. But I'm looking forward to, to seeing that data for sure. And what do you hope to do within the ERA space as your next project? Is there something coming down the pipeline that you're excited about or a secondary analysis or more work you want to do after this study has been published? One thing that we need to do um, and to look at is the patients who were in the non-receptive group and then randomized to a standard transfer in the control group, how did they do with their next transfer when they actually did have then an ERA time transfer? You know, did that improve pregnancy rates? I don't think so. Life birth rates, I doubt it based on what I've seen, but that would be definitely an interesting next step to, to look. Well, we're all very excited that this data is out there. We're, we'll be excited when there's more data um, to help inform just evidence-based practice in the field of reproductive medicine. It's nice when we have level one randomized data to, to help guide that, which is increasingly rare in our field. So thank you for your work. Thank you for presenting it at the meeting. And we look forward to seeing it in fertility and sterility. Thank you so much, Pedro. Hi, we are now here with Tareen Morris. Welcome, Tareen. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. So, Tareen, where are you from? I am originally from Virginia. I went to residency at Emory University, and I'm currently a third-year clinical fellow at the University of California in San Francisco. Fantastic. So, my understanding is that you have two prize papers at the meeting. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. It's quite a shock. <laughs> I'm excited about both. Congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. Why don't you start by talking to us about the Aspire study and your work with Aspire? Absolutely. Um, the Aspire study was born out of, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic and seeing how that affected not only the ability of individuals to access care, but then also, you know, in pregnancy, not understanding enough about how the pandemic would affect pregnant women, particularly those individuals who are early in pregnancy. The Aspire study from what we looked at was from May 2020 to February 2021. Um, I have a wonderful cohort of investigators and the Aspire study is actually currently still going on. In terms of the actual study question, we wanted to see how the pandemic affected women who were early in pregnancy, particularly those who were at less than 10 weeks gestation. Most of the studies that look at anxiety symptoms around pregnancy focus on the second and third trimesters. So that's what makes, I think, our study unique. We definitely recruit patients or participants, I should say, who are fairly early in their pregnancy. And that's a unique time. That definitely is a vulnerable population that I don't think has been well reflected in the literature thus far. So my work with Aspire has been truly enlightening. And I'm excited that I had the opportunity to present my findings earlier today. Jereen, congratulations on your prize papers, plural. Um, I am at University of Oklahoma, and we are actually part of the Aspire study, so I was really excited to start to see some results from yeah. this and publications from this. So how many institutions overall are kind of part of the Aspire study, or do you know that information? Oh, I do not know that offhand, although I know finally all 50 states are represented. Oh, and great. Most of the SART member clinics are Okay, um, a so part it's a very the, broad collection. Exactly. Okay. Exactly, which is what we ultimately wanted. We want something that's reflective of the population. It was nice to partner with SART to make sure a lot of the patients that we inherently treat would be included, mm-hmm. but then also to be able to recruit sort of our community cohort, which included anyone who was early in pregnancy, mm-hmm. who would find out about the study often through social media or through traditional clinics. So I think both arms is 
certainly important. Sure. Um, Joanne, are you still recruiting for the Aspire study? We are. So I think we may need less than 50 participants before we close it off. Um, we're trickling in. That goal was 10,000 participants? It, it was 10,000. I think that because efforts have kind of slowed a little bit, we've brought down the goal slightly. But we're, I think, close to 8,000. That's great. And I'll yeah, double check. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, a testament to partnership, testament to getting the word out. I mean, I think you all have been truly influential and every, helping. Every patient we see at Northwestern, we try to enroll into Aspire. And, and having an electronic medical record, I think, makes that quite easy because we have an after-visit summary and we have keyed into the after-visit summary that each patient receives the information for Aspire. The other thing as a physician, oftentimes I'll just verbally ask the patient if they want to be part of the Aspire trial, and then the physicians can actually go onto the website and register the patient. So that has worked um, quite well in terms of getting our patients to participate. Absolutely. I think we've actually learned a lot from other groups. So the fact that you all key in that particular phrase for every pregnant patient is something that we actually adopted at UCSF. And it's, it's nice to not only complete research, not just for the goal, but then learning from other institutions like you all. Yeah, yeah fantastic. I think there's so much more data that will emerge from Aspire, and I'm really very interested in seeing where this goes. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Joshua and the rest of our study team actually just published regarding sort of vaccine uptake um, within the trial. So there's so much data that we've collected. I think we need more hands on deck to analyze all of it, but it's a truly exciting time. It's unfortunate that COVID is still kind of percolating. So hopefully we can get the findings out and really understand how this pandemic is not only affecting us now, but may affect us with time to come. Yeah, well, congratulations and fantastic work. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing all the results, and I'm very happy to hear that so many states are involved with it as well. Absolutely. That's That's really cool. Yeah. So, Well, should we talk about your other paper? Yes, your... my baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about this paper? Um, yeah, so prior to actually going to medical school, I did some work with PRAMS, the Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System. And so a lot of these studies that I've published or been a part of has used the same national database. This was a question that just living in California, understanding the importance of insurance status on utilization, I wanted to understand for those individuals who were recently postpartum, who reflected on prior fertility treatment use, uh, what percentage was more or less likely to have insurance that likely helped pay for that or cover it. The way we basically determined who had coverage was by looking at the state that the particular participant was from. That would tell us whether they were more or less likely to have an insurance mandate for fertility coverage similar to Illinois. And yeah, it's been interesting findings. I actually found that actually having the mandates really didn't change coverage, except for when you look at the races being a factor in an interaction between race and insurance mandates, black women were actually more likely to use fertility treatment if they were in a mandated state as compared to others, which is what I think you all saw within your population. Yeah, that's exactly what we saw way back when I was a fellow too many years ago to count. But we looked at the utilization of ART services in the military, 
where there's equal access to infertility workup and evaluation. And we saw that it mirrored the DOD population in terms of the population of patients that came into our clinic. And so that was very early work, which has been expanded upon by so many. And I, I think, again, it's, it's incredible work that you're doing in this space. Absolutely. It's exciting to see. I think this is an updated uh, paper from Bittler et al., which initially looked at insurance mandates in 2006. So it's been several years. So much about ART has changed. Not only who's utilizing it, but there are obviously more mandates. The ART just in itself has become a bigger force within our field. And so the opportunity to update that work was important for me. Why do you think the hesitancy to use ART in non-mandated states exist? Do you think it's purely financial barriers or do you think that there are cultural or emotional barriers to accessing care in minority populations? Gosh, I think that's a great question. I think it's so multifactorial. So obviously uh, insurance coverage and uh, the economic characteristic of the person uh, definitely influences whether they use it. But then certainly cultural, who's presenting for care? We know that black and Asian women present later for care. So then that also means that they're more likely to need more infertility treatment, uh, which is obviously more expensive. So is that something that hampers their use? Possibly. Uh, I know that a lot of black women from what has been reported in the literature have felt stigmatized by needing to use um, infertility services or even being called or labeled infertile. So I think certainly uh, cultural and society, societal barriers often do affect who accesses the ART as well. I don't think it's purely economic. And then lastly, I think some of the work from the diversity task force has shown that it's not just the patient. We can't put the onus just on the patient, but what are the providers saying? Uh, who's referring patients? Are patients being referred equitably for accessing these services? And that's still yet to be determined. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I live in one of those states in which is non-mandated. And so it's interesting to hear that. And I think that doing work like this is really important and just basically creating awareness of this disparity as well. It's just extremely important. So um, thanks for doing this work. It's great. Absolutely. This is a labor of love. I'm excited that it was received well, and I hope to get the results out to you all soon. Fantastic. What are your next steps? Um, in terms of Aspire, uh, once we complete uh, the enrollment, really just mining the data and seeing what's there and, and asking questions that we feel like will really benefit the population moving forward. And in terms of insurance mandates and my PRAM study, I think it's important that we expand the population that can access these sort of large survey tools. There are only 12 states that were included, so obviously generalizability is, is limited. I can't say someone who's Latinx from New York is the same as from Florida is the same as someone from California, and none of those other states were included in this data set. So I think lobbying to increase who has access to these questions and who ultimately completes the survey will be important. That's great. Looking forward to see that for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello again. We're at the Fertility and Sterility Podcast. We're live at ASRM 2021. My name is Serena Chen. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist from New Jersey, and I'm here with uh, Liz Ginsberg here from Bergman Women's in Boston and uh, one of the uh, associate editors at FNS. And we're very excited to have Dr. Yigit and talk to us about his research, which we're very excited about. Hi. I'm Dr. Yitzhak I'm from Acaba Masak Hospital, Istanbul, Turkey. 
And uh, first of all, I would like to thank. I'm very honored to be here for the invitation. And we are working actually on PRP, platelet-rich plasma infusions, especially in women with diminished ovarian reserve or poor ovarian responders. Also in ladies with thin endometrium who are refractory to endometrial proliferation. So just to review, we are talking about PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma. It's a very hot topic. And you are looking at that in the endometrium. Yeah. Both and also in ovarian reserve? Yeah, in the ovarian reserve, especially in ladies with poor ovarian response or diminished ovarian reserve. We inject, the, we first of all isolate the platelet-rich plasma, and then we inject it directly into the uh, ovaries through the vagina root, and then we expect for the results. In the first two cycles, we wait for spontaneous pregnancy. And then after two cycles, if they cannot get pregnant by their own, then we start stimulation, the IVF procedure. So you are first looking at the response in a natural cycle. Yeah, we are first looking at the response at the natural cycle with ovarian zero markers, the antral follicle count, and AMH and FSH. And then we are just waiting in the first two cycles. And within two cycles, if we cannot get, if she cannot get pregnant on her own, then we start the stimulation. So did you have a placebo group, or this was like just a, a small trial? Actually, this was a small trial. I mean, the number was 510 patients. It was not, not small, but we did not have a control group. Perhaps one of the limitations of our study is so a significant increase in AMH levels and a decrease in FSH levels and an increase in antifocal counts. Wow. So it, this was a, a diminished ovarian reserve group, or did you have some uh, ovarian insufficiency people? These, these patients were with the diminished ovarian reserve group, the, these patients. And uh, we had in total 510 patients. In almost six of them, conceived spontaneously after the PRP procedure. And then we followed them up. We had the chance to start IV stimulation. And then in almost five, 510 of the patients, we had 105 out of 510 patients, which makes almost 20% who got pregnant. But we made an, another analysis and 38 years old. We saw that the clinical pregnancy rate was almost 40%. Wow, that's very, very interesting. So you are, you presented, have you already presented or you're scheduled to present soon? Yesterday. Okay. And can I, can I ask ERP, is it a single injection? What phase of the cycle are you doing it? And what's the method that you use? We first of all isolate the PRP, platelet-rich plasma, by centrifugation. And then we inject it within 10 days after the menstruation is over. And then we do it through the vagina route, almost 2 milliliters in each of the ovary under sedation anesthesia. And is it under the cortex, or what part of the ovary are you injecting? It is under ultrasound guidance into the subcortical region. Okay. And it's um, two to four milliliters in each ovary. Yeah. And you're using a 17-gauge retrieval needle? What are, you, what are you using? Yeah, exactly. We are using a 17-gauge injection. Okay. And, and, um, this, and tell us a little bit about the endometrial studies. What are you seeing there? Yeah, it was also an interesting study. In those patients, in almost 170 patients, they were refractory to endometrial proliferation, even though we used high dose of estrogen. Some of those, some of those patients had a history of uh, hysteroscopy due to Isherman syndrome. And almost their mean number 
So uh, these were really difficult patients to have to prolume by just estrogen. So we tried to do an another um, uh, treatment, another way of modality to promote the endometrial. So they had already failed conventional treatments. Yeah, before. Okay. In that study, we had a control group. The patients, we offered them endometrial PRP, and some of them accepted, some of them did not accept PRP. So the patients who did not accept PRP were the control group. So how do you, what are the mechanics of doing PRP in the endometrium? How exactly do you inject it, anesthesia, needles? What, what kind of instruments did you use? We are using, again, the 17-gauge needle. We are, again, uh, obtaining the PRP by centrifugation. And we are, again, doing the procedure within 10 minutes after menstruation is over. We are doing the procedure under anesthesia, under sedation anesthesia, under ultrasound guidance. We are just transpassing the myometrium. Tomorrow I will show the picture about this. We are transpassing the myometrium and we are trying to do the injection starting from the fundal region, almost eight to 10 points, to the subendometrial region. We are checking it with the Doppler and when we so are- you're going transvaginal needle and actually injecting into the myometrium right underneath the endometrium. Yeah, yeah underneath the endometrium to the junctional zone, to the okay. junction of the endometrium and the myometrium. And then first to the upper wall and then get, coming back to the lower wall, almost eight to 10 regions. And, and it's and a total volume about eight to 10 cc's or what, what's the total volume? Almost four to five milliliters, okay. 0.5 milliliters per each. Okay. And so you, you avoid a trans, I would think, traversing the endometrium since these patients are going to be having a transfer of the same cycle? Not in the same cycle. We again wait for two cycles okay. to, to promote the subendometrial, I mean, some kind of endometrial cells to proliferate. And you do natural cycles or are you priming with estrogen? What are you, what are you doing for those two cycles before you actually do the transfer? At the end, after two cycles, starting with from the this day two or day four of the menstrual cycle, we start HRT. We start with estradiol to proliferate the endometrium. So, um, get what do you think are the are your next steps in terms of what you're looking at? It sounds like maybe this should we should go to controlled trials for all of these things. Actually, we are now running a controlled trial with our scientific collaborator, the EVRMA team in New Jersey. And we are waiting for the results, actually, of that study, that randomized controlled trial. And secondly... So hopefully you will present that next year. Yeah, hopefully we will present it okay, next year. Okay, wonderful. And also, we are also actually... They are thinking about the mechanism. I mean, these things that we are doing are clinical results. But we are ex actually wondering about what is the underlying clinical mechanism or the uh, biomechanical mechanism related to the PRP. I mean, how does it affect the primordial follicles inside the ovary or the subendometrial stem cells or other kind of tissues? We are really uh, excited about that. So many questions. I agree. Yeah. But so, it's fascinating. So many questions. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Congratulations on this wonderful research. Thank you. All right. Well, we are excited today um, to speak with Dr. Yona Bardos, who is a fellow at the NIH program. He is going to talk to us about his paper on the microbiome. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me to come speak on this. I'm, I'm very excited because I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I listen to it every month as soon as it comes out, cover to cover, sometimes twice. So. <laughs> awesome. 
We um, love that. Yeah, so, so uh, tomorrow I'm going to be presenting on my research. It's uh, my fellowship research uh, project, which is characterizing the reproductive tract microbiome through shotgun sequencing, time of IVF. So Dr. Bardos, I suspect some of our podcast listeners are not actually familiar with the microbiome. So I was actually wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what the microbiome is before we kind of get into the some of the results of your Since research. Microbiome seems to be the scientific word of the year. It's the yes. buzzword. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. Yeah, we all need to uh, know more. So, so that's a great question. I mean, the microbiome, typically it's uh, the collection of virus, fungi, and bacteria that uh, exist in our body. And um, the truth is, this, 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 uh, the microbiome project started actually at the NIH in 2008, where they said, hey, let's oh, actually great. look, yeah, plug yeah. for the NIH. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, where they actually uh, wanted to, to sample various parts of the, of, of the body to see what the microbiome was uh, and whether it has an effect on any, uh, on any homeostasis in the body. Uh, and generally, when people refer to the microbiome, they refer to the gut microbiome just because mm-hmm. it's probably the most studied area, uh, and that's just an ease of access. It's very easy to get. It's very abundant. Um, uh, so, so that's generally what it refers to. But the reproductive tract microbiome actually contains almost 9% of the total amount of bacteria, fungi, and virus that exist in our body. So it's a pretty wow. large, it's pretty high percentage. And uh, in the past, but we had it, a, it's different from the gut. It's it's somewhat reflected by the gut, but a little bit different. That's an excellent question. Yeah, because um, we always think about group B strep, things like that. Yeah. So, one of the one of the hot topics is where does the reproductive tract microbiome come from, and specifically the uterine microbiome. Uh, and the answer is we don't know yet. Okay. Um, I there's an I'm, I'm writing an upcoming uh, book chapter with uh, Dr. Simone and Moreno on this, mm-hmm. and um, one of the one of the tr- figures that we made is really nice comparison where you can see what the most common is in the vagina, the cervix. The so like kind of like a Venn diagram a little bit. Kind, the same concept where you can kind of just see that what exists in the uterus is not the it's not directly reflective of the vagina, the cervix or the gut. Wow. The so there's some overlap. There is some overlap. There is a distinct profile. Yes. And um, one theory is, you know, so there's three main theories to where it could come from. One is the vagina, which is obviously the closest thing. And for a while, we always thought the cervical mucus barrier was strong enough to prevent bacteria from getting in. But we know that sperm gets through it. And clearly, there's probably pathogens along with it. So it probably is not a, it is not a perfect barrier. Uh, it can come through transmembranes. So the gut, we know the gut is all around the uterus and the, the uterus and the fallopian tube. So it may come through that. And then uh, it probably comes also uh, through hematologic spread. You know, so it's picked up by the antigen presenting cells somewhere in the body and brought to the uterus. Now, I mean, the reason why it matters, right? I guess the, the real question is, does it matter or do we care? Uh, and I don't address that in this paper, uh, just because this was the pilot study. That's the multimillion-dollar question, I think, right now. It is, is the multimillion-dollar yeah. question. Yeah. And also, then, I'm curious, you know, what would we do, depending on the microbiome composition that we're finding, perhaps if it's different in patients that are of unsuccessful transfers versus those that achieve pregnancy, which yeah. I know wasn't... The Everybody p- wants to know what yes. probiotics you're taking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bardos. I'm eating yogurt every day. That's my probiotic. There you go. You heard it here from Dr. Bardos. <laughs> um, but, um, you, you know, so there are, th- 
and, and as they mentioned in, in today's lecture, actually, is that the, one of the issues with the uterus is at the time of implantation, we don't have the ability to really sample what's going on. Right. Um, we can sample it at the time of IVF. We can sample it months before. We can even sample it after. But um, it's really difficult to sample what's happening at the time of implantation. And have you looked at different time points? Do you think it changes so, depending on the part of the cycle and your hormone levels? So there are... So hormones definitely play a role in the microbiome um, and the local cytokine milieu. Um, and we know that things like menses, number of sexual partners, type of food we eat, infections can all affect it, which is why it's likely between cycles there probably are slight differences. I, there, there has been some, some research. In fact, I think there's a poster. I haven't read her poster yet, but I believe there's a poster at this conference looking at different time points. Uh, during the during that individual cycle to see if any, any changes. And I, I believe it showed nothing, but I haven't read her, but I just saw the title and said, ooh, I got to look at that. Uh, but basically, the, the idea behind the research was, as, as we saw this morning in the, in the pre-plenary, is we all want to know why does a euploid embryo fail to implant? And, and that's really, I think, the holy grail that we're looking for. Uh, Absolutely. We've been studying this for ages, looking at everything, and we still don't have a great idea. So my thought was I was interested to see whether the microbiome might be playing a role. And it actually came out of when I was doing my genetics fellowship, we had a, re a university-wide research meeting, and they had a presenter uh, who talked about how in the gut microbiome, she had created a bedside strip that could actually tell whether a Crohn's person was having a flare. They just would take the saliva, they'd put it on the strip, and they'd be able to wow. determine it. So I went up to her afterwards, and I said, you think we can do this for the uterus? And she goes, yeah, sounds great. Uh, and that's actually how the pilot study uh, got started. Uh, so we just wanted to see, can we pull off DNA from the vagina, the cervix, uh, as well as the tip of the catheter? Uh, and if so, just what we're getting, how much we're getting. And then the plan was, should we get any data from that to kind of take it to the next step? And the next step would be uh, looking at the white blood cell population. So what is the leukocyte population at the time of an IVF transfer at the level of the upper uterus, the lower uterus, as well as something called quorum sensing molecules. And I think that's the coolest part actually of what I'm doing, which is uh, what I've been working on in the lab. And it's basically a new, it's like a fingerprinting method. It's a new way to look at the microbiome. So it's a PCR-based method? No, it's a quorum, the quorum sensing molecule actually uses um, what's called a whole cell biosensor. So essentially what they discovered in this fish in 1979 is that these fish under the sea, they create their own light. And they were wondering, well, how do these fish create it? And they actually found out that it's due to bacterial species, uh, that when there's enough bacteria, it actually emits light. Uh, and they were able to... So these are like fluorescent molecules. Fluorescent. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So natural fluorescence occurring in the bacteria. Correct. Okay. So they were able to take that, uh, that, that portion of the bacteria, transfect it into various cells. And now uh, when the quorum sensing molecule, when the molecule connects with that cell, it emits light. And depending on how much of the molecule is present uh, will depend on how much light is. And they have various different types of molecule detection systems. Uh, and what a quorum sensing molecule is, is it's basically the, it is the chemical that bacteria uses to talk to each other. So the idea is, hopefully, is to be able to create some type of bedside test, because uh, you can actually put, since it's just detection of a molecule, you can actually put that on a paper strip, take the fluid, put it on, and then determine whether that molecule is present or absent. Oh. This is incredible, and we're really looking forward to hearing your presentation tomorrow and hearing more about 
your continuing research in the microbiome. Hopefully you are going to continue. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, I think the next step is, as Emily had asked, which is, well, what do you, you know, if you find something, what do you do with it? But it's also how do you find it and when do you find it? You know, if you find it a few months before and things change, it's not as helpful. But if you can look at it a day or two before you thaw that embryo, for example, and say, hey, you know, your chance of getting pregnant just dropped by 20 to 30 percent. Uh, then patients can decide if they want to continue on in that cycle. And I think as more and more patients uh, utilize PGT and we have a more uniform population of euploid embryos, it will hopefully become a little bit easier to study these kinds of factors. Yeah, and this study is only in, in PGT embryos, so yeah. it's only euploid. Okay. And we did that intentionally, you know, to make sure that we're not missing anything. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, no yeah, problem. Thank, thank you for having me. Hi, this is Dr. Chen again and Dr. Liz Ginsburg. And we're very excited to have our next guest on here, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Jen Bakkinson. I am a current second year clinical fellow at Northwestern University. And Jen did some fascinating research that we're very excited to hear about. And it also tell us about the grant that you got, Jen. Yeah, so this is an ASRM Institute grant that was a two-aim project, basically. So the first aim of our project was to look at fertility and family building concerns amongst female physicians. And the second aim of the project was then specifically to look at egg freezing and do a cost-effectiveness analysis, specifically in terms of oocyte prior preservation. Wow. So what is the story about female physicians and infertility that we need to know? So you might have seen there's been a lot of information in the media about this recently. Honestly, it's getting a lot of press. There was just a big New York Times article about a month ago about this. Um, and it seems like it's a big problem. The issue is that so much of the data that we have regarding female physician infertility is from surveys that have a high degree of selection bias. And so what we are trying to do with this project is it was actually two aims. One was a qualitative aim where we did some qualitative interviews with female physicians. And then we use those qualitative interviews to develop a tailored survey instrument specifically for distribution amongst female physicians. And so our goal ultimately is to then distribute this survey to a representative sample amongst female physicians. Um, the preliminary results from our pilot study were pretty staggering. And I think for me, one of the most important findings was that female physicians reported um, a high degree of making accommodations for their careers to accommodate childbearing. Um, and that included things like not taking opportunities for career advancement, not taking opportunities for promotion. And when we look at persistent gender disparities in academic medicine, I can't help but think that childbearing is actually a huge part of the puzzle in terms of why we're not seeing the same degree of advancement amongst female physicians as compared to male physicians. I think you may be right about that because there is definitely data about how much money is lost when people take time off for childbearing. And you can't help but think that a lot of the gender inequity we see in compensation in general is related to childbearing. Um, so I, I think this work is very important to really validate those impressions. I have a question, Jen. Has anything looked at, I don't know about your study or other studies, looked at the type of relationship, if someone is in a relationship, what the, if, there's a, if there's a significant difference in terms of the partner's 
um, involvement in either child rearing or the financial input into the family? So our study, and again, our pilot study really was only piloted amongst 25 female physicians, oh. but it does ask questions exactly like that. Like, what is your partner status? Like, how much of the household chores are divided amongst your partner versus you? And I believe that there must be a strong contrib contribution there. Um, again, with our pilot survey, I don't think that we have the data yet to answer that, but that's exactly the kinds of questions that this survey is aimed at investigating further. Great. So I, I think this um, really connects well with uh, a lot of what ASRM is doing, that now ASRM has taken egg freezing from the experimental status to saying that they support it for cancer fertility preservation to medical fertility preservation, and finally in 2018 saying it uh, egg freezing is reasonable for anybody to be to consider when they are concerned about fertility. And I would... Um, I definitely have a bias that I don't think there's a difference between medical egg freezing and fertility preservation because of concerns about age, because we know there's significant morbidity and mortality with advancing age. So I'm really looking forward to the next phase of your study. And that's exactly so. AIM-2 is exactly looking at that, is specifically the cost effectiveness of egg freezing versus other strategies for deferred childbearing. And now this has been looked at in the past, but previous studies have used single center data to attempt to answer this question. And so the goal of this study was to use SART data to not only analyze the cost effectiveness of the goal of one child, but also for many of our patients, they're hoping to have more than one child. And so we extended the analysis further to look at the likelihood of success and also the cost effectiveness of having one child versus two children. So we modeled basically six strategies altogether in our analysis. Two strategies were with the goal of having one child. Two strategies were with the goal of having two children. Um, for one child, it was either oocyte cryopreservation at age 33, and then trying to attempt conception at 43, and then using those um, frozen oocytes as ne necessary, versus not oocyte cryopreservation, and then doing IVF PGT at a later age. And then for the goal of having two children, strategies included going through one cycle of oocyte cryopreservation, going through two cycles of oocyte cryopreservation, not going through oocyte cryopreservation, and then attempting conception at 40 with embryo banking and IVF PGT. Or finally, not doing oocyte cryopreservation and then trying to attempt conception with IVF PGT at age 40 and then again at age 43 for the second child. And what we found is that for both one child or two children, overwhelmingly oocyte cryopreservation was a more cost-effective strategy. And specifically when you thought about two children, not only was it more cost-effective, but it was significantly more likely to achieve the goal of two children with a 72% likelihood of achieving two children with two cycles of oocyte cryopreservation as opposed to a 16% likelihood of success if you did IVF without embryo banking. And so really what our data, I think, show is that overall um, it is oocyte cryopreservation at a younger age may provide the best opportunity to have more than one child, which I think for a lot of our patients is a, an important yet previously underexplored goal of oocyte cryopreservation. That's phenomenal. I think would be wonderful as maybe as a secondary goal is to look at how we can help our female residents, our female physicians have more access 
to this type of technology and cost benefit analysis would be really helpful. Like what, what is the cost of not providing this benefit to our female physicians? I think um, a lot of our program directors or a lot of the universities need to hear about that. I agree. I mean, at Northwestern, I will say that we are probably one of the only programs in the country where all house staff have access to completely covered oocyte cryopreservation. It is an extraordinary benefit for our house staff. Are you going to be able to have access to analyze some of that data? I I believe that we are actually uh, currently in our division are working on certain programs to give information about this to some of the house staff and to access um, information on utilization of the program as well. But I I think think it's absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think one of the critical points is what percentage of patients or people that freeze eggs are going to actually use them. And so from a sort of personal um, financial standpoint, if people don't have coverage, that can that can be a substantial financial hit for somebody that's still early in their career. Absolutely, um, and we're trying to and when we're trying to advocate for our um, our female physicians to have access to this in their training programs, people are always going to ask, "What is the cost of providing this coverage mm-hmm. to our physicians?" We know from previous data with the mandates that it sounds like a lot of money to provide coverage, but we are actually finding in most of our mandated states that the the cost to provide this benefit is actually very low per per member, and the benefits are are huge. So it would really be nice to see that data for female physicians. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We look forward to hearing a lot more from you soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me. So we are here with Dr. Allie Hutler. Allie, where are you currently doing your training? I'm currently a third-year resident at Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. So Allie, we're going to talk about your paper. This sounds very interesting. It's entitled Disparities in Surgical Management of Tubal Ectopic Pregnancy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this project was a NISQIP-based project, which is a national database that looks at surgical outcomes um, across the country. And we used this database to identify all cases of tubal ectopic pregnancy, which is the most common kind of ectopic pregnancy, that were chosen to be managed surgically, which means either with salpingectomy, or removal of the tube, or salpingostomy, which is just removal of the pregnancy itself. And we aimed to look to see if there were disparities with regard to race and ethnicity in terms of both surgical approach, meaning laparoscopic surgery or minimally invasive surgery, versus the more traditional open or abdominal surgery, as well as both that and the procedure types of salpingectomy versus salpingostomy. Did you have a hunch going into this as to what you thought you would find? We did, based more than anything on the literature that exists already, that shows that there are significant racial disparities with regard to surgical approach, specifically within gynecologic surgery, typically in the things that exist now with hysterectomy, myomectomy, other gynecologic procedures, we did anticipate that we would identify some sort of disparity with ectopic. And so as part of this, do you have the diagnosis of the patient too, or do you suspect, you know, a lot of these patients have pelvic inflammatory disease, or do you have that information as well? I I wasn't entirely sure if you had that in your results. Sure. So unfortunately, NISQIP does have a lot of variables, but one that it does not include is things like history of infection or endometriosis. So those are unfortunately things we could not control for. I see. 
Well, tell us about your, your conclusions of the study and kind of where your next steps are with regards to this data. Absolutely. So our study showed that Black and Hispanic women had nearly 50% lesser odds of undergoing minimally invasive surgery, meaning almost twice as likely to have open surgery compared to white women. And Black and Hispanic women also had significantly higher likelihoods of undergoing salpingectomy compared to salpingostomy compared to their white counterparts. So these were significant disparities that we identified, and we also looked at them over a period of time, comparing the earlier half of the past decade to the more recent half of the past decade, and almost every one of these disparities was persistent, meaning still present more recently, except the disparity seen in Hispanic women um, with the increased likelihood of salpingectomy. This was actually not seen in the most recent time cohort, which was very interesting. And were you able to distinguish whether or not these disparities occurred within the same hospital or was this maybe neighborhood hospital differences in practice patterns? So based on our what we could abstract from NISQIP, we could not identify which hospitals these were coming from in terms of, or we didn't separate out by that at least, and we also didn't have data available in ter- regarding like resource availability at those hospitals or surgeon laparoscopic training at those hospitals. But something that was brought up in the Q&A and that we plan to look towards in the future is identifying regional differences. And yeah, if you could do geocoding or yep. zip code analysis and see whether or not there are just differences in practice patterns among physicians who practice at different hospitals as opposed right. to racial disparities in the way that we are treating patients. I'd be very curious to see those data. Yeah, absolutely. We know that resource allocation is not universal and that minority populations are more likely often to seek care at lower resource hospitals too. Yeah, that's great. Well, congratulations um, on your research and thank you for talking with us today. And we look forward to seeing any future publication from this. Thank you so much. All right, and we are now here with Lauren Butler, uh, who is the prize paper recipient. Lauren, tell us a little bit about your research. Yeah, so my name is Lauren Butler. Um, I am an active member of the Goldman Lab at Northwestern, and so the lab in particular focuses on the mTOR pathway. And so prior data that Dr. Goldman completed showed that inhibiting this mTOR pathway actually led to preservation of primordial follicles and fertility in mice. And so we kind of continued that project and looked at the downstream effects of these inhibitors on offspring health and fertility. So take that a step back. What, for our listeners who may not be familiar with mTOR, what is mTOR? So mTOR is a kinase and a big metabolic regulator. There's actually two complexes of mTOR, mTOR 1 and 2, um, but a lot of people know it as it's a member of the larger PI3K AKT pathway, and this pathway is involved in cellular quiescence, um, longevity, and actually it's activated in 80% of human cancers. So the pathway as a whole is acknowledged in a lot of different studies, but we're focusing in on mTOR as there's a lot of clinical data on mTOR's role in primordial follicle activation in the ovarian reserve. And so extrapolate the science to the clinical question Mm. of, I know this is really important, but Mm. why is it important and how should I be thinking about mTOR? Yeah, kind of big picture. And so our prior data showed these inhibitors as a fertoprotectant. And again, they kind of preserve the fertility of these mice. And so because of that data on fertoprotectant and just some data we gathered on the pup health, our hypothesis here is that 
mTOR inhibitors could be used to improve reproductive potential um, with limited effects on offspring health and fertility. So are you saying that potentially in the future, mTOR could be a novel therapeutic that might decrease response to chemotherapy or might decrease ovarian aging and may ultimately help to preserve fertility as women age? Yes. So mTOR inhibitors are actually already widely used and they're FDA approved for transplant rejection and multiple cancer treatments. Again, we are studying them as fertoprotectants. And so one study of ours showed that mice that were co-treated with chemotherapy, typically which would kind of be gonadotoxic to the mice, um, these inhibitors actually preserve their fertility. And so there is that spectrum of preserving fertility in a chemotherapy model. We also talked about kind of big picture you know, what population should be taking these or kind of what's the relevance to the clinical community. Um, And when talking with Dr. Goldman, we talk about our ideal population being those late 30s, early 40s women with few reproductive years left. That being said, we do still have hesitations. We all shouldn't start taking mTOR inhibitors tomorrow, but we are kind of at the beginning stages of showing this research and showing that if these inhibitors are taking, the downstream effects aren't gruesome um, to offspring health and fertility. I have a question about, so mTOR use in in humans, Mm -hmm. what are the side effects and what would be the limitations in terms of trying a clinical trial? Yeah, yeah, no drug is perfect. And so right now, a lot of the side effects, because there is an inhibitor of mTOR, you're actually inhibiting T-cell proliferation. Um, And so stomatitis is a big one, Um, kind of nausea, diarrhea, but insulin resistance is the big one that I think we're trying to battle. So those are kind of what we're seeing so far clinically when people are taking these mTOR inhibitors. If you were using it for fertility preservation in a a patient having chemotherapy, it would be presumably just a one-time infusion before or oral agent before they get their chemo. If you were talking about it in somebody with ovarian aging, Mm -hmm. what would would the dosing schedule look like? Yeah, so we based our dosing off the oncology literature, Mm -hmm. but it is, from my understanding, just like an oral pill that Mm -hmm. they're taking, but I don't think it's a one-time thing. It's a consecutive treatment. And so going back to your prize paper. Tell us a little bit, I would say in three sentences, uh, Mm -hmm. if you could summarize the findings of what you presented. Yeah, so kind of based on our prior data, again, looking at these inhibitors as fertoprotectants and the literature on kind of overall pup health, we're seeing that mTOR inhibitors do have the potential to improve reproductive outcomes, and we are showing favorable outcomes for offspring health and fertility. That's amazing. So basically what you're saying is that you can give an mTOR inhibitor and still have fertility in the offspring, and then those offspring are healthy and produce healthy offspring. Yes, that's what our data is showing now. I think this project is still ongoing, but and we do have kind of some things in the pipeline, I would say, but right now I think our basis is that, yeah, the offspring health and fertility is showing favorable outcomes so far. That's amazing. Huge kudos to you, Lauren, and to Dr. Kara Goldman for her incredible work in this area. Awesome. Thank you, guys. So why would you choose mTOR? Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm Kara Goldman. I am the medical director of fertility preservation at Northwestern and um, run a lab investigating ovarian aging and the use of mTOR inhibitors to uh, preserve fertility during chemotherapy and in a physiologic ovarian aging model. 
So my question was, there is some data suggesting that infusion of AMH may also prevent, uh, you know, oocyte loss during chemotherapy. So why choose an mTOR inhibitor over an AMH infusion? Absolutely. The AMH data is very compelling. So I think that we are fortunate to have um, some really interesting data right now, um, kind of looking in parallel at multiple pathways that could be um, explored for this purpose. Um, the advantage of the mTOR inhibitor model is that these drugs are FDA approved. And so Everolimus is an FDA approved mTORP1 inhibitor currently in clinical use in the breast cancer population for endocrine resistant ER positive tumors, for renal cell carcinomas in a number of neuroendocrine tumors. Like these drugs are proven mm -hmm. in the oncology literature. And so we have a good um, basis for kind of understanding the use of these drugs, and it would be a more direct path to getting these into the clinic for photoprotectant use. My other question is, if you're giving an mTOR inhibitor to somebody who is not using an mTOR inhibitor for their chemotherapy, is there any way it could prevent some sort of positive impact of their chemotherapy on their cancer? So could it, could it somehow reverse the effects of chemotherapy in some way? I just don't know enough about the, the, the interactions of these medicines. Right. It's an excellent question. And I think what's important to note is that mTOR is um, upregulated in 80% of human cancers. And so there's actually a really um, strong um, biological rationale for the use of these drugs as um, oncology drugs because of their um, ability to prevent tumorigenesis. So in, um, you know, the mTORC1 inhibitors, um, you know, Everolimus and the mTORC1 and 2 inhibitors, um, specifically INC-128, which is what we studied, um, these are, you know, being used widely in preclinical models to investigate their use in various cancers because of their tumorigenic effects. Um, and so, you know, in, you know, truly kind of in all organ systems, they're being investigated as anti-tumor drugs. So I think that there could actually be a, a synergistic mm -hmm. effect of, um, of their use as, you know, in, in the furoprotectant um, realm as well as in the yeah. oncology realm. And we saw that when we um, presented data a few years ago, we saw that in the, um, in mice that were treated with mTOR inhibitors, there was um, a synergistic impact on the, um, on the downregulation of the mTOR pathway. So we saw that um, use of mTOR inhibitors alone caused downregulation of the pathway, but downregulation um, was uh, even more significant when combined with cyclophosphamide and these, and these drugs. Mm -hmm. So in fact, there may be a synergistic impact. Mm -hmm. So this is a question, it's almost a philosophical question. There's pretty good data on, in breast cancer that if you have an ER-positive patient, that actually if you do ophrectomy, they do better long-term. That's the whole reason why they're getting tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. So is there a disadvantage to a patient in terms of preserving her fertility and maintaining ovarian function when the data would support that if she has early ovarian failure, she'll actually have a higher long-term survival rate? It's a fascinating question, and I absolutely agree that these are like these are the questions we need to be asking. Um, now, I think that the reason I am um, you know, the reason that I am reassured is that what we'd really be doing is preserving that primordial follicle pool that is not producing estrogen. Like we're not um, we're not affecting that growing pool of follicles, and and, and so you're right. If we're preserving long-term ovarian function true. Like there could be, you know, maybe we don't want to preserve long-term ovarian function. Um, but I think that there's like, these are, these are the questions, you know, and certainly in the, um, in the, there, there are so many models of um, ovarian aging that we're thinking about, you know, the, there's the cancer population, but then there's also, you know, all of the, the patients who have, who, uh, you know, an increased risk of POI from various genetic 
um, etiologies and just, um, you know, just DOR and kind of all these populations of patients who are so difficult to treat. I think if we could target a way to kind of preserve that primordial follicle pool, whether it be through mTOR inhibition or AMH, you know, whatever tool we're able to, to identify, I think this is really the future and where we need to be headed. Yeah. So do you think at some point there wouldn't be any purpose in oocyte cryopreservation because you would be able to inhibit... No, absolutely, absolutely not. So I want to be clear that like we are, <laughs> um, you know, I think that the standard is always going to be oocyte cryopreservation, embryo cryopreservation. Um, but I think that what I'm really, you know, my focus really is on, um, you know, not, not just the fertility side, it's really just the ovarian function side. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we could potentially, um, you know, not only preserve that, that, that small pool of gametes and embryos pre-chemo, um, but also preserve ovarian function so that women have a longer reproductive lifespan mm-hmm. and more years of ovarian function and all of the benefits of ovarian function. I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, not necessarily in the chemo model, but just in the ovarian aging model. I mean, if we had a few extra years of reproductive life, um, that would, you know, that could potentially change um, life expectancy. We know there's a relationship between age of menopause and um, an age of death and total longevity. So I think that like, we're really trying to focus on advancing ovarian health so that we can um, just improve a woman's life. Those are really good points. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on FNS On Air with us. Thank you very much for having me. And that about does it. Fertility and Sterilities on Air Special Edition live from the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo in Baltimore, Maryland. I hope you enjoyed the episodes, especially that last part with Dr. Ginsburg and Dr. Goldman at the end. Just so happens that Dr. Ginsburg had a few more questions, and since Dr. Goldman was right there, we ushered her over to answer them under the microphone because who wouldn't want to be a fly on the wall for that conversation? I mean, that's why we have these meetings. Before we go, I have to give a shout out to all the guests and hosts for helping put this together. And special thanks to Meredith Sauls, Theo Ryan, and Angelia Pittman for making our dream a reality. So, from the FNS Interactive Associates and editorial team, I'm Michael Simone, wishing you a farewell until next time. Take care, stay safe, and hopefully see you in Anaheim for ASRM 2022. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.